Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The Bowery Boys, Episode 42, Fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. Tom isn't here with me this week. And that this week's episode will be a little bit different. It's not exactly the lightest subject that I have ever personally tackled on this show. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which occurred in March of 1911, killed 148 people, most of them women, and it actually brought about fire safety reforms in the manufacture of buildings in New York and in fact all over the United States. But actually, my fascination with the Triangle Fire, which, I mean, it draws a lot of parallels to a lot of current tragedies like 9-11, but my personal fascination kind of formed at a really early age and because of something very silly, actually. When I was a kid in the late 70s, there was this TV movie on called The Triangle Factory Fire Scandal. Um, I think it was on NBC. It starred Tom Bosley from Happy Days, Charlotte Ray from The Facts of Life. I mean, in fact, that's probably the only reason I was watching it as a kid was to see Miss Garrett and Richie Cunningham's father. But the movie ended up really freaking me out when I was younger. And it kind of stayed with me and kind of stays with me still in the back of my mind is this sort of place of dark memories. But it is something everyone should know about, if for no other reason, as it will make your own workplace seem like a veritable comfort palace in comparison the cast of this story, they're not sitcom stars, but they're the heart and soul of lower Manhattan's immigrant population. So let's go back there. It was a very beautiful brisk day. It was a Saturday, March 25th, 1911, and to that very busy factory next to Washington Square. In 1900, I'm from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was located at Washington Place and Green Street, just a block east from Washington Square Park. What I think is kind of surprising, given that you know it's the location of a famous and devastating fire, 
is the fact that the building which housed the Triangle Factory, which was formerly called the Ash Building, kind of an unfortunate name, the Ash Building is actually still standing. In fact, it looks pretty much exactly the same way as it did in 1911. It's now incorporated as a facility of New York University, and it's called the Brown Building, named after philanthropist Frederick Brown, who gave the building to the university in 1929, 17 years after this tragedy. The floors that were affected by the fire, the 8th and 9th and 10th floors, I believe are now actually chemistry labs. I guess we should start with the question, what exactly is a shirtwaist? Women's fashions in the 19th century sort of befitted their status as mothers and wives, essentially women whose center of life was at home. But that was changing by the end of the century. With industrial innovations in big cities, women were needed to fill out jobs that men wouldn't, or in some cases couldn't, take. This then came hand in hand with the development of a certain form of women's independence. Working class women could travel unaccompanied to their workplaces using these new forms of transportation, like cable cars and the elevated railroad. The shirtwaist was essentially a transition form of women's fashion, a high-collared blouse similar to a man's shirt unconstricting and it allowed women to actually you know move around worn with a long skirt it was a sort of modern fashion of an independent woman at the start of the 20th century the workforce at the triangle factory was made up mostly of women who were essentially the breadwinners of their families pulled mostly from a group of new immigrants from eastern europe and italy a majority of these women lived in what would be today's east village and lower east side the Triangle employed girls and women between the age of 13 years old and 25, and maybe a few a little bit older. Almost all of them, though, were first-generation immigrants, and many of them collected their wages such as they were, then turned around and sent most of that money back to their families in their home countries. By the way, I said 13 years old was the minimum age. Well, that's not exactly true. In the early days of the Triangle Factory, around 1901, and like a lot of factories, they're not the only ones guilty of this, children as young as seven or eight years old would be employed. I mean, there were child labor laws that were being enforced around this time. So when inspectors came by, the supervisors would just simply put the children in crates and then throw a bunch of blouses over them to hide them. So... With that kind of work ethic, you can probably guess that the sweatshops of the New York garment factories were hardly a p any place that a person would choose to work. Supervisors docked your pay if you were one or two minutes late. There were no such things as sick days and vacation days. You worked from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., often in rooms that were so dark that the lamps were burning pretty much throughout the day. You had one break a lunch break for about 30 minutes. At the Triangle, you would actually be shoved in a room with hundreds of other women hunched over sewing machines. On the ninth floor of the Triangle factory, there were at any given time 240 to 260 sewing machines in three long rows, wall to wall, alongside these gigantic cutting tables. You were treated by your bosses as though you were completely dispensable. In fact, the Triangle actually had no consistent record of how many employees they actually had. No one still knows how many actual people were really at work that day on the day of the fire. But despite these horrible conditions, if you were a young woman who had just arrived in America and you had a very tenuous grasp on English, 
mean, at least you were here and you were surrounded with others your age. You could talk with people in your own language who, who weren't your family and or the people that you lived with. And then after work, you could actually develop friendships and, as what eventually happened, then organize and then try to change your workplace condition. 1909 was actually a watershed year for labor reform in New York City. Considering what would soon happen at the Triangle, what I find interesting is that workers' safety was not really on the top of the list of reform items. What were on the agenda were things like commensurate pay with their male counterparts, then better pay for both men and women in these kinds of jobs, reasonable hours, and cleaner work environments. The Triangle was, of course, often the focus of workers' ire, and particularly the two men who owned it, known as the Shirtwaist Kings, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. They were actually Jewish Eastern European immigrants themselves from Russia and had very likely experienced many of the terrible conditions on their way to becoming business owners. And now they seemed blind to their own workers' conditions. They, in fact, specialized in cramming factory work into these vast high ceilinged lofts high above the city. You know, I mean, keep in mind a 10 story building like the Ash Building in 1909 was essentially a skyscraper at the time. The Triangle workers had attempted to strike against Blank and Harris on October 4th, 1909, but Blank had anticipated this and chose to do something totally outrageous. He hired a bunch of Bowery prostitutes to come in as scab workers to take the place of the striking women. When the strikers urged the prostitutes to actually join them in the strikers line, the prostitutes then attacked the strikers to then shortly be joined by the pimps in this wacky melee. Then, of course, the police came by and arrested them all. Meanwhile, of course, Blank began hiring private detectives to mingle with his workers and alert him to any sympathizers of the newly formed International Ladies Garment Workers Union so that Blank could monitor them and sometimes fire them. Now, for yet another podcast, we do need to go back to Cooper Union for a minute because it's there on November 22nd, 1909, that urban organizers hold a rally to discuss workers' conditions. The defining moment of this meeting occurred when a young organizer by the name of Clara Lemlick burst to the stage shouting, I have something to say. She then urged her listeners to go onto an organized strike. Lemlick was the type of gal who was not afraid to get roughed up by the cops. In fact, that night, she sported bruises on her face from just such a brush-up with some hired thugs. So the next day, a major strike erupted in the New York Garment District. Over 20,000 workers strong, including most of the Triangle workers, demanding better hours, fair pay, and a closed shop, meaning that they could only hire union workers. They eventually got most of their demands met because they basically paralyzed the shirtwaist industry in New York. Even major players like Blank and Harris relented to improving pay and hours, but they themselves had also formed an organization of like-minded and powerful business owners, and so they kind of managed to reject other terms like keeping a closed shop, for instance. So that's a little brief history of the 1900s labor conditions and, of course, the accompanying outrage. And so it's in the light of all of this that we turn to the fire itself. So in 1911, work conditions were still marginal. They would be completely, totally unacceptable and illegal today. Most of the work at the Triangle occurred on the 8th and 9th floors with the executive offices on the 10th floor, which was the top floor. Most of the Triangle employees were women, though men were also hired, often in the role of cutters, which required measuring and cutting of the raw fabric based on a standard design. It was also one of the highest paid jobs at the Triangle. March 25th was a Saturday, and yes, pretty much everyone was at work on Saturday. Everyone had pretty much worked a full day, and it was almost 5 p.m. ready to leave. Now, on the ninth floor, there are technically two exits to stairwells, one on the Washington Place side of the street, 
the other on the green side of the street. But despite fire regulations to the contrary, the exit on the Washington Place side was locked. It was locked because Blank and Harris were concerned with theft in the workplace, worried that the women would be taking home little bits of fabric or lace. I mean, in your job today, I mean, who hasn't taken home a few pens or paper clips, you know, and just lock me in and force me to empty my pockets? That is exactly what they did at the Triangle, because the exit on the green side was blocked with a partition, and a man stood there and basically checked everybody as they left for the day. Another cost-cutting measure at the Triangle involved these wide bins at the end of the table, which would collect all the stray pieces of fabric that had been discarded. These bins were almost never, ever emptied on a regular schedule. Now, most likely, though we don't really know for sure, down on the eighth floor at around 4.35, one of the cutters had presumably been smoking a cigarette out the window, and ashes from the cigarette ignited one of these bins of cotton fabric. I don't know if you've seen cotton burn. It basically feeds and speeds up a fire. And so here were these gigantic bins, in fact, an entire room, in fact, a couple floors of cotton. The fire that then ensued, it took exactly 18 minutes to burn. 18 minutes, three floors, and an estimated number of anywhere between 700 to 1,000 people on these three floors. Two exits, well, only one on the ninth floor, two small elevators, a freight elevator and an executive elevator, and a fire escape. A very, very, very bad fire escape. So the flames basically engulfed the eighth floor within minutes. However, most of the workers were able to escape. The eighth floor Washington Place exit was also locked, but some resourceful employees were able to break the lock and escape. An employee was able to call up to the executive floor and warn them of the flames. However, nobody could call the ninth floor, and they could only be informed by someone running up the stairs. And if you consider a fire that only takes 18 minutes to spread that fast, even that basic delay costs some lives. Blank and Harris happened to be at work on the 10th floor, and in fact, Blank actually had his two young daughters with him. So at the news of the fire, Everyone on the 10th floor, about 70 people, then fled up to the rooftop, but there, they were stuck. The building next door, the American Book Building, was a classroom, and a law professor who was teaching about 50 law students at the time saw the flames and then heard women screaming. The professor and his students ran up to the rooftop to assist. The NYU building is about 15 feet higher than the Ash building, but luckily there were some ladders on the roof, which the students then lifted down to rescue people. In fact, some very heroic students then even traveled down the ladders to carry those who had collapsed or who were injured. Some even had to stamp out flames that were still clung to women's clothing and even in women's hair. Down below, the fire trucks were essentially useless to a fire this high up. The highest ladder that could be extended was still 30 feet from the floors that were affected, and the water barely moistened the side of the building. Inside, firefighters had to wind their way up a stairwell, which at this point was filled with people. Another form of heroism, however, was going on in the elevators. Both the young men who were manning the elevator controls would return each time to the burning floors, fill their compartments with people. Between them, the two operators made about 20 trips, but these were very small elevators. Actually, one operator kept returning until the flames began warping the cables and the elevator car was no longer able to move. The flames arrived to the ninth floor within minutes. People ran to the Washington Place door and discovered that it was locked. Meanwhile, the flames were coming in from the windows and igniting the cotton that sat basically everywhere in the room. So hundreds of people were trying to escape out the single remaining door and, of course, that flimsy little fire escape. 
that fire escape empty out onto an air shaft behind the building, and the residents of the adjoining building could actually see what was happening, but they couldn't do anything to help. Dozens of people tried to cram themselves onto this spindly fire escape. To make matters worse, iron gates that were on the windows on the lower floors were actually left open and then were completely blocking the escape path entirely. So you had people crammed in. They were not able to move. A few people who were maybe thinking a little clearly went down a couple floors underneath the fire, smashed the glass in, and escaped back into the building. From there, they could access the far stairwell from an unlocked door. But many people were stuck behind those iron window gates, with flames now leaping through the windows and over three dozen panicked people cramming onto it. The fire escape then crumbled and gave way. Everyone who was on the fire escape fell to their death, in some cases crashing through a skylight and igniting the basement of the ash building in flames. Meanwhile, people were emerging from the stairwells onto the ground floor and were directed by police officers to actually stay in the building as there was still a danger outside. A danger falling from the upper floors of the building, not flaming debris, but something far more ghastly. The dozens of people still trapped on the ninth floor were now forced to take to the windows for air. Flames had completely blocked the only usable door, and the elevators no longer came. Many people had already collapsed from asphyxiation. With absolutely no way of escaping, some people then decided to take an extremely drastic measure. Now, down on the ground, a huge crowd had gathered by this point, obviously. There was a woman there named Frances Perkins, who lived at Washington Square Park, and who will figure into our little finale a little bit later. She walked over to the ash building and noticed what she thought were people salvaging garments by throwing them out the window. But as she got closer, she realized that it wasn't garments that were being tossed. The firemen and police officers below tried to urge people on the ninth floor not to jump, as their flimsy nets would not be able to catch anybody jumping from that high up. However, no one could either hear or perhaps it really didn't matter if they could. One woman named Frida Vilakowski actually survived the fall, but the others, dozens of others, over 60 people did not. At one point, in a sort of macabre sort of chivalry, a man was seen helping women out the window before he himself finally jumped. By this time, there was literally nothing that anybody could do. By the time firefighters were able to make it to the upper floors to douse the flames, everybody who had been trapped on the ninth floor was dead. In total, 141 people had died in the fire. Throughout the course of that evening, seven more people would join them, including Frida Vilikowski, the woman who had survived the 100-foot fall from the ninth floor. She ended up dying of internal injuries in her hospital bed, making 148 victims of the Triangle Factory Fire. If you're so inclined, there's another location in Manhattan that you can actually visit that's associated with the Triangle Fire. The pier at 26th Street and the East River, once known back in the day as Charity's Pier, took on a new nickname in the 20th century. They called it Misery Lane. It was here that the victims of the 1904 General Slocum steamship disaster were taken. And it was here, seven years later, that the victims of the Triangle Fire were kept. Inside it was a madhouse of very grim mourning as hundreds of people poured in to look for loved ones, many being identified only by pieces of jewelry or clothing that hadn't been scorched off. 
It was kind of an absurd scene. Almost 40 people were arrested for pickpocketing. There was even a door person, almost like it was a nightclub, a nurse named Mary Gray, who apparently must be the most patient woman ever in the history of New York City, who, as basically a one-woman show, was able to be firm and compassionate on equal terms to hundreds of people. Eventually, most of the victims would be identified, but a few never were. Many of those may have had family back in Europe who just one day never heard from their family member ever again. Of course, in the days following the disaster, New Yorkers went looking for blame. Even the city prosecutor, Charles Whitman, had actually gotten to the scene of the fire shortly after it had been extinguished. A march of almost 350,000 mourners took to the streets a few days later in a memorial march. Blank and Harris were actually taken to trial for manslaughter, but unbelievably, they were acquitted of any wrongdoing. Part of this has to do with the fact that they had basically the Johnny Cochran of the day, a brilliant lawyer by the name of Max Stewart, who managed to cast doubt on much of the testimony of the witnesses. Many of those called to the stand didn't speak great English. Stewart had a key witness repeat her story several times over and over again, so that it appeared to the jury that the witness had actually been coached. All he really needed to do anyway was cast doubt on whether Blank and Harris were consciously aware that the Washington Place side exit door was locked. He managed to convince a jury of this doubt, and the two were acquitted three days after Christmas on December 28, 1911. They were eventually the targets of civil suits then, which they then settled for the sum of $75 for every person who died. Within 13 months, the Triangle Fire would be overshadowed by an even greater tragedy. In 1912, over at the Chelsea Piers, they were supposed to be preparing for a great celebration, the welcoming of the brand new ultra-luxury liner, the Titanic, but that's for another podcast. This story has somewhat of a happy ending, at least for all of us. So that woman who lived on Washington Square, Frances Perkins, politically savvy and terribly affected by what she saw, she made her way into New York state politics and was soon a close advisor to soon-to-be Governor Al Smith. Smith was an anointed choice of New York's Tammany Hall and its boss, Charlie Murphy, the most powerful boss in Tammany's history. But this was a different Tammany Hall, lustful for votes as always and for positions of power as always. In the 1910s, Murphy had to acquiesce to the needs of this powerful new voting bloc, the Eastern European immigrants. So then, labor reform and work safety in the wake of the Triangle Fire was now a priority. State officials worked with organizations like the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union to pass many reforms that regulate building safety standards, and definitely in the nick of time, as New York in the 1920s enters the age of the skyscraper. So that's the story, the tragic, the depressing, but the very important story of the Triangle Fire. I promise next week Tom and I will offset this with a topic that is overly light and frothy. If you're interested in this topic and you're looking for a good readable book on it, I would recommend a book called Triangle, The Fire That Changed America by a Washington Post writer by the name of David Von Drail. And of course, that TV movie starring Tom Bosley, believe it or not, I think it's on DVD, but I wouldn't exactly trust the veracity of the information in it. You can check out our blog, www.boweryboyspodcast.com, which is updated almost every day with little history tidbits. Our music this week was The Triangle Fire by the Brandos from their brand new album that was just released this year called Town to Town, Sun to Sun, and Requiem for Dying Mothers by Stars of the Lid from the 2007 album Tired Sounds of Stars of the Lid. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.